You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a new year, and welcome back to the Inside China podcast. My name is Holly Chick. I'm a science reporter with the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. And it's not just the new year that we're celebrating here. It's the beginning of a new chapter for us as we move into the fourth year of the pandemic. You're listening to the sound of the Lokma child border crossing between mainland China and Hong Kong, along with all other border checkpoints. It's essentially been closed for the past three years. But now, thousands of people are heading from Hong Kong back to mainland China. More than 30,000 people on the first day of borders reopening on the weekend. <laughs> and meanwhile, at Beijing International Airport, people are walking out of the arrivals lounge and heading straight home rather than to quarantine facilities. <laughs> It's been a month since our last episode, in which we asked a basic question about China's decision to drop all testing for COVID and all quarantine for reported cases. Would it be able to cope with what comes next? COVID is running rampant in China and hospitals are filling up. Resources appearing to be stretched so thin, the sick often lying on lawn chairs instead of hospital beds. Medical staff are under immense pressure. Many have fallen ill themselves. In funeral parlors across China, there's chaos. So many are dying, they can't cope with the number of bodies being brought in. The virus now seemingly unstoppable as it rips through the population. If you're one of our listeners in New York, Seattle or London, maybe that's bringing back memories from the year 2020. Hospitals overwhelmed, morgues overflowing, doctors and nurses overstretched and exhausted. But for many of us here in Hong Kong, the images of patients in hospital corridors, body bags piling up, and people desperately trying to get care for their elderly relatives is all very reminiscent of the first months of last year. In January, February, March and April, That's when the Omicron variant exploded in Hong Kong, taking the death toll per million people to 1,200 within 64 days. It was among the highest in the world. Nearly 9,000 people died of COVID in that time, delivering a harsh truth to a city that had spent the previous two years banning airlines whose passengers tested positive, demanding travelers stay in quarantine hotels for weeks on arrival, and even slaughtering thousands of pet hamsters in its attempt to maintain a zero-COVID policy. The reality was Hong Kong failed to vaccinate its elderly, and then insisted on hospitalization for asymptomatic cases of COVID, which resulted in massive overloading of the health system. And the reality right now for mainland China is that it finds itself in a very similar position to Hong Kong in January 2022, only with a much, much bigger population. (laughs) 
And now, as we begin our fourth year in this pandemic, a new chapter has begun. Because after three years of being close to the world, mainland China has opened its borders. This decision was met with concern from governments around the world, who subsequently reintroduced the need for pre-flight PCR tests for people flying from mainland China and Hong Kong. This is Dr. Michael Ryan, the WHO Emergencies Program Director, talking last week. We believe that the the current numbers being being published from from China underrepresent the true impact of the disease in terms of hospital admissions, in terms of、uh, ICU admissions, and particularly in terms of deaths. And one day later, this is the response from Beijing's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, China has always shared relevant information and data with the international community with an open and transparent attitude, and shared the virus genome sequence at the earliest moment, making important contributions to virus countries' vaccine and treatment research. All eyes are on China as the Omicron surge continues, with some commentators initially speculating the surge might lead to a new variant of the coronavirus. And now, a new, more infectious variant has emerged, but it's come from the U.S. What does this mean for us around the world, and what's the forecast for how the surge of cases will play out in mainland China? Let's get Professor Ben Cowling from the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Professor Ben Cowling, thank you once again for your time. It's nice to chat with you again, Holly. Before I ask you about COVID in China, I feel it most pressing to ask you about this new subvariant, the XBB 1.5. I hesitate to say it's ironic, but just a week ago, some news organizations were framing China's COVID outbreak. As a potential for new variants, and now we've got one from the U.S. Were you surprised by this? I was a bit surprised. We know that there's been a lot of opportunities for COVID to continue to evolve. Infections are occurring around the world, and the numbers of infections are still very high. So it's not a surprise that the virus is finding new pathways. But all the discussion in recent weeks has been about the possibility of a, a worrying new variant come out of China. And actually, the subvariant that's concerning us the most is the Omicron XBB.1.5 subvariant that's been detected in the U.S. recently. It looks like it's got the ability to infect people who've got immunity to other Omicron subvariants from recent infections. And so it will cause a lot of infections this winter, at least in the U.S. and probably in other parts of the world. You mentioned its transmissibility. Is that your main concern that this new subvariant is highly transmissible and evades previous immunity? I think with with the latest XBB.1.5 subvariant, it does seem to be yet more transmissible again and able to escape the immunity that. Many countries have got because of recent epidemics with BA.5 or XBB or other Omicron subvariants. So it, it is a concern. It, COVID is not going to disappear. It's going to continue to evolve, and we're going to continue to see some people getting quite serious COVID illnesses. Actually, that happens with other respiratory viruses as well. There's people in hospital with flu every year. People in hospital with other coughs and colds every year. The small fraction are severe. But with COVID, it also seems like it's going to continue to cause some 
level of severe disease. Gone. We actually have a lot of people in hospital with, with COVID. We have, unfortunately, a lot of deaths every day with COVID and other countries maybe not doing as much testing as we are, but are also having a, a lot of people in hospital at the moment with COVID and also with other respiratory viruses at this time of the year. Is there any evidence that supports the idea that a new variant is likely to come out of mainland China as a result of this wave? Well, I think that that's very difficult to assess. So what we do know is this winter in China, there will probably be more than 1 billion infections because there's no immunity barrier in China. They've got a high vaccine coverage, but that doesn't stop infections. There's no previous waves of, say, Omicron, BA1, BA2, or something else. There's no immunity in the population to infection. And with such a high level of transmissibility as Omicron surveillance currently have, it's very likely that the vast majority of the population will get infected this winter. So that's more than 1 billion infections. And that's 1 billion opportunities for the virus to evolve, to find a new direction. And that's against a background of most people in China having their immunity from two doses or three doses of inactivated vaccine. And that's a vaccine which provides immunity not only against the outside of the virus, the spike protein, but also the internal genes because it's a whole virus vaccine. So it's not clear to what extent that would push the virus to evolve in a new direction. But one thing I would say is because there's no previous Omicron waves in China, there's no immune barrier for the virus to have to try and go around because everybody's susceptible to infection. And so I don't think there's a lot of pressure per se on the virus to evolve in China. And I could contrast that with, say, Europe or North America, where there's a lot of immunity from BA1, BA2, BA5, XBB infections and whatnot. And a virus strain that's able to get around that will be able to spread very well, even if it's similar in terms of transmissibility to other strains, the immune escape would give it a big advantage. And what we're worried about globally is new strains with immune escape. The transmissibility will probably continue to increase. The severity will probably continue to come down because of all the vaccines that have been given and all the infections that have occurred. So we're mostly worried about immune escape. And I would say the pressure for immune escape is probably higher in other parts of the world compared to in China. But having said that, there's a billion opportunities this winter for the virus to find a new path. So I think it's very difficult to predict where the, the, the next subvariant might come from. But one, one interesting point that there's been a lot of discussion in recent days and, and, and recent weeks about the idea of testing travelers from China, requiring a PCR test before departure and so on. But there's no discussion whatsoever about the idea of doing a PCR test before departure for people traveling from the U.S., where XPB.1.5 is spreading fast and is a big concern, I certainly would not advocate the PCR testing to be done on travelers anywhere in the world because it doesn't actually have the desired effect. It does not stop the global spread of subvariants. But it is interesting that there's all this discussion on a hypothetical scenario in China, which so far there's no evidence of any new variants emerging, but there's no similar discussion on the actual situation with, with a new variant being detected in the US that is somewhat concerning. And so I, I hope that we'll see an end to the requirement for PCR testing pre-departure because it really has minimal effect. It's just costly, disruptive to travelers, and it doesn't have the, the effect that it's supposed to. Well, a month ago, you spoke to us about your forecast for when the Omicron outbreak would peak in mainland China. And you said you had concerned about the false sense of security in mid to late December that things weren't so bad after all. 
What are you seeing right now about what's happening in mainland China? I think it was a mistake to brand COVID as a mild infection as something similar to flu. I think they called it COVID flu. I saw one report on social media, maybe true, maybe not, that uh, some patients were denied reimbursement for their medical care for COVID because the government had said it was COVID flu and therefore not COVID and supposedly not serious. What we've seen in the recent days and recent weeks is unfortunately a lot of people needing to go to hospital in China with more severe COVID. Whereas Omicron around the world has got milder and milder, actually the virus itself hasn't changed that much. I would say the intrinsic severity of the virus, the ability to cause severe disease in someone with no immunity, no vaccines, no previous infections, that intrinsic severity hasn't actually changed that much. COVID itself hasn't become milder as a virus, but the effect on populations is is getting less and less because we have all the immunity that we've built up from getting vaccinated multiple times, getting infected maybe multiple times as well. And so each successive infection from now on, on average, will be milder and milder, even though the virus itself is still fairly similar. And the problem now is in China, there's a lot of older people who haven't had vaccination. They haven't had a previous infection. So they're facing the intrinsic severity of Omicron, which we saw in Hong Kong caused 10,000 deaths in our BA2 wave in early 2022. If you scale that up with a vaccine coverage in China in older people, there's a, a big risk of a large number of COVID deaths this winter. It's not comparable to flu. It's far greater than the impact of, of seasonal flu. For younger people, for healthier people, COVID probably won't be serious. That's true around the world. That was true without vaccines, actually. And with vaccines, with a very high vaccine coverage in China, that will be even more true that there'll be very few severe cases in younger people. But in the elderly, that, that's where it, the virus can really still do a lot of damage this winter. And I'm very, very concerned about the situation. What I'm particularly concerned about is around the world, I, I've worked on pandemic plans. And so around the world, countries have their, their idea of how they're going to deal with a new virus. And what they'll typically think about is some early containment phase where they try hard to delay the virus, to buy time, to get things ready. If you go back to 2009, pandemic H1N1, Hong Kong did that pretty well. We bought like a couple of months with travel restrictions and contact tracing of cases in the community and so on. And we delayed our, our pandemic H1N1 influenza wave until September. It has started in April and May in the US. So containment phase goes first, maybe short for some countries if they, if they give up quickly and they decide it's not worth it. In COVID-19 in China, their containment phase was almost three years. They kept the virus back for three years. The second part is then a mitigation phase. Once the virus is spreading in the community, you can't stop it anymore. You can't put the cork back in the bottle. So you just have to try and slow down the virus to spread out cases over a longer time period. If you're imagining there's going to be a lot of people needing to go to hospital, if that's going to happen within the space of, say, a month, it would be better if you could spread it out to happen over two months, because then there's more beds available for the patients that need it. It's less pressure on the hospitals at any given time. And if you could spread it to three months, even better again, even if the number is, is the same at the end of the day, spreading it out already saved lives. And then later, you've then got the return to normal. So you finish the mitigation measures, maybe schools have been closed, people have worn masks, and then you say, okay, we got it all clear. This is mostly over. Things can start to get back to normal. And what China seems to have done in December 2022, they've gone straight from containment to return to normal 
without mitigating in the middle the, the, this massive exit wave. And so in the major cities, Beijing, Shanghai, and elsewhere, all their hospitalizations have occurred within the space of about a month. If that could have been spread out even to six weeks or to eight weeks, the impact would have been lessened. And it, it's surprising that there hasn't been an effort to mitigate. That was one of the recommendations from, from my colleagues at Hong Kong University in a, in a preprint they published, that in the transition from zero COVID to eventual return to normal, there should be a mitigation phase in the middle with maybe mask mandate, some social distancing measures, and so on. But, but that hasn't been done across China. It's very surprising. There's a range of claims about when this will peak. Beijing central authorities say it's already peaked, and some other organizations forecast that this will peak later in 2023. Last we spoke, you said maybe sometime in mid-February, depending on certain factors. What's your opinion now? I would say if mitigation measures had been used, then mid-February maybe would have been a target for the peak. But what's actually happened, I would say likely early January, the nationwide peak in infections. Some cities earlier than that, other cities maybe later, rural areas maybe later. But if if we had perfect information on every single infection in China, my suspicion is the peak in infections would be sometime in early January because the virus has just been, been able to spread freely, very, very quickly, with very large numbers of infections occurring in a fairly narrow time interval in the major cities. And then with Chinese New Year coming up uh, at the end of January, the travel of of people around the country mean that even if there's some village somewhere in the countryside that so far avoided COVID, I think the virus will be finding its way to every last corner of the country during those mass migrations in, in the Lunar New Year celebrations. So that means by February, there will actually be very few people left in China who are still susceptible to the currently circulating strains, BA 5.2 and BF7. Those are the two strains that are being picked up in in the greatest frequencies across the country. Now, if XBB 0.1.5 gets into China from the US, which I I would say may well happen in, in, in the near future, that could, of course, cause another wave of infections because people who've had BA 5.2 maybe would still be susceptible to getting an infection with this latest subvariant. Depends on the timing. There's probably stronger immunity for two or three months after infection, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if there's another major nationwide wave of infections by March or April or May with another new subvariant. But the impact on people's health would be much, much lower because that would be an infection on top of hybrid immunity where people in China have already had probably two or three vaccine doses, plus an infection with what's going around now. And then they get something else in in, in three months' time. It would be much milder on average. There there wouldn't be nearly as many hospitalizations. So in terms of the peak of infections, I mean, there could be multiple peaks throughout the coming year and, and future years. But the impact on people's health will be generally smaller and smaller and smaller. In terms of the peak in hospitalizations, I mean, that's very clear. That is now. That's not going to be later in 2023. There may well be future waves of COVID, but they will not cause anything like the number of hospitalizations that we're seeing at the moment, with probably a billion infections, of which a small fraction are severe, that there will not be similar numbers of severe cases that we can anticipate in the future, unless there's, of course, a very drastic change in the virus. But I don't think that that's a very likely scenario. 
It's been three years since your phone and email got busy with journalists asking for contributions. Do you foresee a time in 2023 when this ends? Can you see the end of the road for when COVID becomes endemic? Well, I, I hope so. I think in many parts of the world that's already happening. And China's maybe the last domino to fall in that sense that I don't think there are other parts of the world where COVID hasn't yet had a chance to, to spread quite widely. But who knows what's going to happen in the future? I'm going to continue my research on COVID, particularly on, on the performance of vaccines and the timing of booster doses. I get a lot of questions from my friends at the moment. Should they get the fourth dose? Should they get the bivalent? What's the optimal timing if they're going to get booster doses? And, and that's a, an active area of research for people of different ages and, and, and different if they have medical conditions and whatnot. The answer may be different. But a recommendation for more frequent booster doses in, in people who are older or have underlying medical conditions of, of, of various types. But uh, I mean, that, that's a, an important question. And one of the other things that I'm keeping an eye on is what's the cost, like the market cost of vaccines? Because around the world, governments have bought with bulk purchases, they bought vaccines and delivered them, administered them for free. In Hong Kong, we've been able to get all our vaccines for free. And I, I think that's fantastic. In the future, that may not be the case. I know in Hong Kong, the, the sanatorium has already said they're going to start offering BioNTech to the public, for tourists and whatnot, for people coming from other parts of the world, particularly mainland China, and they have to pay for it. So I'm looking out for what's the price going to be, because the, the mRNA vaccines at the moment are expensive to manufacture. They're not cheap. They're not cheap vaccines. So what we've got to then weigh up is, is that cost effective? I mean, if it comes down to a very, a very low cost, that's obviously an, an easy decision to make. And if it's very expensive, then that's also an easy decision to make. You know, <laughs> it becomes unaffordable for many people. But uh, that, that's one thing I'm keeping an eye on, because in public health, we obviously have a lot of concerns. We're concerned about people's health in all different dimensions. And protecting them against COVID with, with jabs is important. But there's lots of other things that are also priorities. And so let's see how that pans out. But uh, I'm certainly keeping a close eye on what, what the potential cost is for these booster doses and for annual booster vaccination programs for COVID. Professor Ben Cowling, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks, Holly. There is one city in mainland China that's suffered one of the harshest lockdowns, inspired the biggest protests, and quite possibly had the greatest impact on the rest of the world as it went through the different stages of this pandemic. I'm talking about the city with the world's busiest port, the world's largest population, and mainland China's biggest finance and trading hub, Shanghai. As I speak to you on this second Monday in January, news reports are stating an estimated 70% of Shanghai's 25 million residents have now been infected with COVID. And our colleague Thomas Yao has once again been at the front line with his camera, documenting what's happening. Thomas Yao is a video journalist in our Shanghai Bureau. If you're listening to this podcast back in April, you would have heard him reporting on the life in lockdown. But in the past few days, he's been documenting the effects of China's sudden removal of restrictions. Thomas, hello. Good to have you back on the podcast. Hello, and a long time no see. Yeah, tell us, where have you been in Shanghai and what have you seen? I've been to two hospital emergency rooms in Shanghai. 
One was shortly after Christmas. One was just a few days ago. The first one I went to, it looks like a flu season emergency room. I mean, it's packed, but somehow I think there's still order and there's not much chaos. The other one that I went to two days ago, that was in another district in Shanghai. And that one was pretty grim. The emergency room is packed. The majority of the patients there are elderly. And there's long lines to apply for a bed in, in the hospital. There are old people who are obviously in very bad shape that was being carried into the emergency rooms. And uh, really is a pretty grim situation in that hospital. Thomas, on the streets, what kind of messaging are you seeing from, you know, social media or state media? What are people told to do when they have lighter symptoms? I think what I saw, like, uh, this is just from the first article of the Shanghai city government's uh, official WeChat account. They said the city arranged like over 100 experts to instruct frontline medical workers on how to treat patients with severe cases of covid and there are also reports saying uh, we are arranging medications such as not like painkillers like ibuprofen and Tylenol, but antiviral drug, the Paxlovid, to community clinics. There are also anecdotes on WeChat that I saw that to prevent people from selling the Paxlovid antivirals on black market, the patients have to go to the clinic themselves and take the first dose in front of the doctors and nurses. Yes, there is that. I think in early December, the, the messaging is Omicron variants is much milder than the previous uh, variants uh, like Delta. But I think after the Christmas, after the surge in cases, I think the, the messaging is more about we're doing whatever we can to mitigate the situation, to ensure there's enough supply of medications. And we're hearing about panic buying of everything from paracetamol to apricots. How are people coping? What are you seeing in the shops? The painkiller situation has improved a lot. Well, I heard in early December, like there's a general shortage of painkillers, ibuprofen and Tylenol, and there's even more severe shortage of painkillers that are for infants and young children. So those days are very hard to come by. But right now, I think the situation has improved. I think definitely for those basic medication, they have improved. But right now, I think the medicine that in short supply are antiviral drugs like Paxlovid. Like I think Chinese one is called Azifudin. In Chinese, I don't know about the English name. Those are antivirals specifically, just slowing down the replication virus inside our body, right? And then there's also a shortage of immunoglobulin injections. I'm not a doctor, so you probably need to consult an expert, but they are prescribing that injection to patients across the country and it's in short supplies in hospitals. And so those are the, I think the medicine shortage that I heard right now in Shanghai and across China. Thomas, can you tell us about the general mood in Shanghai? People in that city went through a much tougher lockdown than anyone else in mainland China. I'm just wondering how they're feeling about this sudden removal of restrictions. I think it's a rather strange atmosphere. On one hand, I've never seen so many people dining in in restaurants since March uh, last year. Um, we went to a shopping mall 
in downtown and well, there's just lots of shoppers. So some shops even have queues outside. So that was like, wow. But then once you step into the hospital emergency rooms, it's just a very different feeling. It's split split. When you're walking on the streets, you, you don't feel there's anything wrong with anything. And no one is doing any more PCR tests. I haven't done any PCR tests in almost a month. So it's a really strange mood here in Shanghai. And all the conversation on dinner tables are about uh, when did you get COVID? What's your symptoms? Did anyone get sick? Do you got enough medication? I think there is that. I didn't hear a lot of open criticism on the government, but I'm sure you're aware that there are people who are now like missing the days of zero COVID. If you saw enough of social media posts on WeChat, on Chinese version of Quora, the Zuhu website, uh, but there are also people who feel quite frustrated that the society is so ill-prepared for this surge, especially when we spend so much time and effort on lockdown and testing, and that now we are running out of, you know, Tylenol. From people queuing for PCR tests to people queuing in shopping malls and, you know, for restaurants. Are they talking about travel plans? You know, are there any plans for, you know, traveling overseas, perhaps going to Hong Kong or bringing family members overseas back home, for, especially for, for the Chinese New Year? I saw some restaurants closed right now. Not that they are, they are out of business because there's a surge in COVID cases and a lot of restaurants decide to close and release the stuff earlier for Chinese New Year. That's what my barber was telling me, that a lot of people decided to go home early for Chinese New Year. As for overseas trips, not so much, not so much. I didn't hear so much about it. The common theme of conversation is still like how many old people are suffering, where to get medication for them, things like that. I think we are not quite there yet in terms of overseas travel. Although I heard Sanya's hotel are getting more and more expensive by the day. So there's definitely some signs of recovery uh, for domestic travel. Thomas Yao, you've been doing a great job and we hope that you get a holiday soon. Thank you very much, Thomas. Thank you. I'll see you guys later. Let me take you a bit deeper into what's happening across China right now. Xin Luliang is my colleague on the China Desk and has been looking at the information and the misinformation surrounding China's vaccination rates, the medical treatments available, and how everyday people are trying to prepare for the XBB variant. Xin Lu, welcome. Hi, Holly. Yeah, Xin Lu, you published a story about the fears of elderly people about vaccination. What did you find out? Yeah, so I have this question about why China has struggled to boost up the elderly vaccination rate for a while. So I decided to dig into it and see what it was like on the ground. So I want to explore what's the difference between the urban areas and the rural areas. And so I think that the most uh, salient problem or their most major concern, of course, is that many elderly people have underlying diseases, uh, chronic illness. So they are worried that if they get the vaccine, their situation, their condition will deteriorate. So they just be careful not to do it. And also, when I talk to many elderly people, I feel like they have a habit 
of not to do vaccination for a long time. Like vaccinate for anything against any virus has been really low in China's tradition. Tell me more. Yeah. So besides their vaccine hesitancy,、uh, there's also a thing that we know as zero COVID policy. So China has been adopting this draconian zero COVID policy for three years, especially in the past year. So they basically just stamped out all the outbreaks immediately, especially within major cities, and some smaller cities, especially in the vast rural areas, they're actually untouched by the COVID nineteen outbreaks for the past three years. So when Omicron was like raging through the country. The smaller counties and cities, they actually have been bracing for the outbreaks for the first time in three years, and now they were worried. They have always heard the virus and saw it on TV news programs, but then they never seen it beside them. Yeah, so many elderly people will just don't have the motivation, and they don't think it's necessary to get the vaccine. So, what about doctors? What did they say to elderly people when they want a vaccination? Actually, the doctors and nurses and other medical workers who are assigned to get the jabs, they are kind of reluctant to ask the elderly to get the shots because they themselves are not sure if the elderly people can get the vaccine or not. Especially, as I said, in rural areas, where like village doctors. Are less competent in deciding which condition is suitable for getting jabs or not, so they also may hesitate. The doctors themselves may hesitate. They lack the decisional support. And also, besides doctors, there's another kind of group called village cadres. As community workers and cadres, they actually have the duty to push the vaccine rollout. They have to get these elderly people vaccinated as part of their daily jobs, or they may get like demoted or fired or warned. So they have this political duty actually. So they will push it by force, partially, including like they will visit the elderly in person, door to door, and then phone them numerous times, even their family members, to get this down. And so, especially in like smaller villages, counties, everyone just knows everyone. So if you don't get a jab, actually, the village cadre will knock at your door every day. They will phone you constantly. So you, at last, you have to get a jab. But the problem is, as I talked to some village cadres and community workers, this was just a case of the first shot. And at that time, the village cadres. I don't know why it it was the case, but in some places their duty was deemed done if they get the first shot down. So the cadres won't ask the elderly to get a second or booster shot anymore. They won't send the cars, the medical teams to get this down or get the elderly to the hospitals. So this is the case in rural areas as opposed to major cities. That it's really hard to persuade elderly to get the second or booster shots. Xinlu, we've been reading about how medical facilities are overwhelmed in some parts of China. How are people finding their own resources? So you know the hospitals are overwhelmed, 
in many cities in China, and then people can get access to the medical resources they need. So they kind of turn to social media platforms, including like Douyin, that is China's version of TikTok, and WeChat, the messaging app, and Weibo. They were just searching for all kinds of tips in terms of how to get different kinds of drugs, tips on how to cure yourself by Chinese medicine, and also how to get the generic drugs from India of Paxilovid. But this is actually a black market because the Indian generic drugs are not authorized in China's markets. And lately, we have seen reports from Chinese media that some of these drugs are actually fake. They are first generic drugs, but then some of the boxes, packets, the Chinese bots are fake as well. So the doctors they are actually warning Chinese residents not to buy this kind of drugs, especially not through the black market, through some illegal channels like on WeChat, on Douyin. We just heard from Thomas about the control of Paxlovid. Xinlu, how much are people paying for a box of these? People will pay about two thousand nine hundred eighty yuan. That is four hundred thirty U.S. dollars for a packet of Paxlovid. And even if you pay such a high amount of money, you still don't have the access to it. Unless you get the prescriptions from the hospitals or the community centers, we heard that the cities of Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou are among the first cities to distribute Paxlovid and other antiviral drugs to the community hospitals, so that residents can take the medicines there. Xinlu, we have talked all about medicines. And I saw in your article that you picked up something very interesting as well. That is the tiny devices that people are buying to measure oxygen level in their blood, and it's called a oximeter, right? So this is really popular on Douyin and WeChat because people are worried about a phenomenon called silent hypoxia, which is kind of popular among the elderly. Because you look okay, you appear good, but then actually your blood oxygen level is really low, so it's hard to detect the symptoms early and then send elderly to the hospitals in time. Xinlu, actually, there's an oximeter sitting on my table at home because when my mom got COVID, the Hong Kong government sent home like a care package and. In the package, there are medicines, and of course, it came with this little device. You just clip it on your finger, and it's super simple. It will show you the oxygen level in the blood. And my mom told me that when the package was delivered, she was told that if your blood oxygen level drops below ninety-four, then you will need to go to the hospital because you're kind of in an emergency condition. Xinlu, you've been following social media as well. Let me ask you about this latest trend or rumor that is coming through Chinese social media with this new XBB variant from the U.S. People both here in Hong Kong and in mainland China are rushing to buy an entirely new type of drug. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so this is actually some new rumors trending on China's social media, and it is really out of nowhere. It originated actually from a post from a very ordinary man. He's not a medical expert, actually. He's just a printer in a company. He posted on his WeChat, 
and then it was circulated all over the internet, and then someone took it as a expert and then believe it, and then everyone is rushing to pharmacies and online e-commerce sites to buy these kind of diarrhea drugs because they believe that diarrhea is a particular symptom of the new variant, but it is not. And the public health experts have dispelled this. So here we are, three years into the pandemic, and we're still battling misinformation. Thank you, Xinglu, for your hard work. We'll see more of your reports on scmp.com. Thanks, Holly. So that's what's happening on the mainland. Let me tell you what's happening here in Hong Kong. Last week, as the first day of the border reopening came closer, something happened in Hong Kong's vaccination centers. The number of people rolling up their sleeves for their third or fourth shot or to get the bivalent booster went from 2,000 a day to 20,000 a day. And a picture of a box of paracetamol went viral on social media because it had a price tag of 798 Hong Kong dollars. That's around 100 US dollars for 50 pills of Panadol. Since late December, many on social media have been talking about a Panadol shortage in the city, either because people were buying it up to send to their families in mainland China or because they were panic buying. We sent our producer, Jasmine Se, out into downtown Causeway Bay to find out what's going on. Jasmine's asking if they sell Panadol. All of these people said they're all sold out. One guy says they won't be able to restock until after the Lunar New Year holiday. But two stores did have some on sale. These stores weren't selling Panadol at 798 Hong Kong dollars, but prices have still gone up. Jasmine noticed these pharmacies were mostly selling Panadol at around 238 Hong Kong dollars. That's around 30 US dollars. Two months ago, the price tag was usually under 50 Hong Kong dollars. It's all sold out, this pharmacy worker says, so everyone is hiking up their prices. Well, this guy says you're foolish to buy them for their current price, but at least a couple stores still had them in stock. At least he still has stock, he says. Otherwise, you can't buy them even if you do have the extra money. But that was last week. Over the weekend, we finally got to report on some good news. Yesterday, three border crossings and one ferry terminal opened up after three years of being closed. Thousands of Hong Kongers booked their spot and headed over to see family and friends. One of the first people to cross the Lok Ma Chao checkpoint into Shenzhen was Zhou Yuhang. <laughs> Joe hugged his girlfriend, Karin Xu, for the first time in nearly half a year. So exciting, and yet a little strange. Very exciting, yes. The first time in six months. The couple had been separated due to strict travel rules. For the past half year, they could only talk through video calls or wave to each other while standing on opposite sides of the Shenzhen River. 
Shenzhen and Hong Kong are really close geographically, only a few dozen kilometers apart, but it has been so hard to cross the border. When he was really on the other side of the river, less than 100 meters away from me, it feels surreal, so surreal. I really wanted to rush to the other side because only fences were in our way. We walk around there, trying to get closer to each other, but found there was no way. Now, with the mainland ending its zero-COVID policies and travel restrictions, travelers going into the mainland no longer need to quarantine for days or weeks, although a negative PCR test result is still required. It's back to what it was like three years ago. We can travel easily back and forth between Shenzhen and Hong Kong. It's a very happy feeling. It came about so very suddenly. With the Lunar New Year coming up, there are sure to be a lot of travelers going into mainland China for long-awaited reunions and celebrations, in addition to the tens of millions traveling between cities in mainland China. But we're also going to see something else. Chinese tourists once again packing their bags and traveling overseas. According to the online travel agency Trip.com, Chinese tourists right now want to fly to Japan, Thailand, South Korea, the US, Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, and the UK. To give you an idea on just how many Chinese tourists we might be seeing soon, let me give you a rundown of some numbers from 2019. 155 million Chinese tourists spent a total of 254 billion US dollars on outbound tourism. That's nearly 20% of all overseas tourism spending for the entire world. And now, let's get into some specifics. In Japan in 2019, out of the 4.8 trillion yen spent by all the tourists coming from around the world, a third came from mainland China alone. As for the US, there were nearly 3 million Chinese tourists who contributed more than $33 billion to the American economy. That means each Chinese visitor spent an average of 12,000 US dollars. And in Australia, 1.3 million Chinese tourists traveled there, contributing $12.4 billion to the Australian economy. That comes down to roughly 9,500 US dollars for each Chinese tourist. And let's not forget how many Chinese students might be once again planning to head overseas to study. This year, 2023, is going to be a year of change. So let's recap where we are in this first episode of the fourth year of the pandemic. The borders to mainland China are now open for the first time since 2020. The PCR testing stations, the dreaded big whites are gone from the streets. Hong Kong has dropped nearly all of its social distancing restrictions. But you still gotta wear a mask when you walk around outside. All of this as a new highly transmissible version of the virus, the XBB variant has spread from the USA and is making its way around the world. And we are two weeks away from the annual Lunar New Year migration, Chen Yun, where hundreds of millions of people in mainland China travel home for the family reunion dinner. The difference this year 
is whether you live in Shanghai, Melbourne, Chicago, London, or Seattle, we're all living the same reality. As always, keep up to date with all the latest news and analysis on scmp.com. Follow us on Twitter at scmpnews. My name is Holly Chick. Bye for now.